the prophet Jeremiah lived about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Jeremiah's father was not a prophet, he was a priest. But Jeremiah did not go into the family business as you might have expected. You remember the job of priest was sort of um, not like a prophet. Priests were not preachers. They were more like quality control specialists for worship. And so when people would come to the temple to worship, they would bring their sacrifice, and a priest would be the, the inspector. He would, he would look at the sacrifice to make sure that it was acceptable, and then he would instruct the people on how to make a proper sacrifice. The priest would, um, would offer prayers and burn incense, but they were not preachers in, this, in the way that you would think of it. They didn't, they didn't proclaim the word of the Lord. That was the job of the prophet. And the prophets weren't just preachers. They were often itinerant preachers. They would just simply go place to place. They would, they would break out in sermon in, a, um, in the middle of the city center or um, as they were crossing the street or even sometimes as they were walking in to worship in the temple. They were, they were spontaneous, extempore sermons. And they would just simply come out of the prophet at, 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 at a moment's notice. They often serve as sort of the, the vocal conscience of the people of Israel. And when things got really bad, the prophets weren't uh, beyond doing some kind of outlandish gimmicks to really kind of grab hold of the people's attention. For instance, the prophet Isaiah was instructed by God to strip off all his clothes and walk around naked for three years. Now, I don't know how long you get along in a church like that, you know, before they, like, cut off the salary, but here's Isaiah for three years walking around with no clothes on as a message, a metaphor to the people. If you trust in other nations, this is what God will do. He will strip you naked, and you'll have no one to cover you up. You trust in God and not the other nations, or this is what's going to happen to you. In a similar way, the prophet Hosea was called to go out and marry a prostitute. He was told by God to take a woman as a wife who was a prostitute, as a metaphor to the nation that this is what Israel is doing to God that they had prostituted themselves with the pagan idols of the day, and God was displeased with it as much as if someone had married a prostitute. And so they had these really difficult jobs where they're called to sort of live out, both in word and, and metaphor, like a living metaphor, God's feeling or his angst towards the nation. It was a tough job to be a prophet. And so you can imagine that when Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, his first response was, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> maybe, maybe in a little while, a few years, I'm, I'm still pretty young, you know, Lord, uh, college, grad school. Someday, maybe I'll be up to it, but not now. Of course, you know that God doesn't accept lame excuses, and so Jeremiah was drafted into God's army. He was given this compulsory position, and then he was placed in the role of being a prophet. And his message was the same message. He knew what he had to preach. He had to go to the people of God and say, God says enough is enough. Stop, turn around, repent of your sin, or you'll be destroyed. God will allow another nation to come in here and just destroy you, level the place. Now, that's a tough message to preach. And it probably explains why Jeremiah did not get invited to a lot of parties. He was not, he was not a, a welcome guest. I'm guessing he didn't get a single Christmas card. Do you know how I know that? <laughs> no. I know it because he was born 600 years before Jesus. Do you not listen to anything I tell you? <laughs> but if he had not been born 
after Christmas or had been born after Christmas, he still would not have gotten a lot of Christmas cards. His friends were precious few. Why no friends? Because every time he opens his mouth, something kind of difficult comes out of it. Listen to this sermon. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin. From the midst of Jerusalem, blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Raise a signal in Beth Harakam. For disaster looms out of the north and a great destruction is coming. Man, give me a reprise of that sermon, huh? Or how about this one from chapter 8? My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is the king not in her? Why have you provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. We are not safe. This is the message that Jeremiah is preaching, and you know what? People don't like it. Do you know what people almost always don't like? Being told they're wrong. No one wants to hear that. No one wants to hear that they're wrong. And so Jeremiah keeps preaching this sermon over and over again, and he gets lower and lower on everybody else's popularity poll. And that sort of is the context for today's lesson. He has been preaching his most provocative sermon of, to date. And to do it, God has given him a little, uh, a little visual, a little, um, a little object lesson to take to the people. He had him fashion a yoke and put it over his shoulders and wear it into the temple where everybody was showing up to worship and he starts preaching his sermon about destruction. You remember what a yoke is? It's, a, it's this device that you would put around a, a horse or an ox and it would kind of latch the, um, the, the beast of burden to its machinery. And so like if you had to pull a plow or you had to plow a field, you would put the yoke around the, the, the horse or the ox and then there would be straps back to the plow and then that, that would pull the plow through the, through the field. Jeremiah fixes a yoke and he puts it over top of himself and he says, you know what? This is what the nation of Babylon is going to do to you. They're going to put a yoke over top of you. And every one of the Israelites is going to be yoked as a slave to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. You could imagine how popular this would be as if, for instance, imagine that you heard a preacher today or, or on the news or you know somewhere you picked up and, and this preacher was preaching against the corporate sin of the United States of America. And the preacher was saying, just for instance, that the United States is going to be yoked to the... To the as the servant or the slave to the Saudis or the Iranians or the North Koreans. Could you imagine? You ha- I mean, this is not the guy you would be sending Christmas cards to, is it? This is not the person you would be inviting over to your parties. Hey, wh- how about we discuss politics? Nothing like that at all, would it? You would be saying, I don't want to hear anything from this guy. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Uh, the lectionary was trying to be very clever and to pick out a piece of the middle part of the chapter so we almost wouldn't understand the context but here's what happens. There's another prophet who shows up in town. His name is Hananiah. Hananiah wears all the prophet's clothes. He looks just like a prophet. He, he comes from all the, the prophetic families. He, he's steeped in prophetic uh, literature and, and learning. He even speaks like a prophet. He says, the word of the Lord says thus and thus. And everybody says, oh, this is a prophet. And guess what Hananiah says? Hananiah says things are going to be just fine. Let me read to you a passage. It's not in your, in your uh, bulletin this morning, but it's from the earlier part of chapter 28. Hananiah, the son of Azor, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord. Jeremiah is saying this. In the presence of the priests and all the people. 
saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. See, he sounds like a prophet. He says the exact same kind of thing. I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away and carried into Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Hananiah says, Jeremiah, you're all wet. You're wrong. God is going to fix it. He's going to make everything good and right. It's just a little short time, and it's going to be all better. Everything's going to be all better. None of this doom and destruction stuff. Away with you. Here's what you really need. Here's the sermon that everybody's been waiting to hear. It's going to be sunshine and puppy dogs and rainbows. It's going to be beautiful. And Jeremiah says, I don't think so. This is the confrontation the people have. Are they going to choose Jeremiah and his message, or are they going to choose Hananiah and his message? Is it going to be, repent of your sin, return to the Lord, or be destroyed, or, you know, God's not really interested in all that. He loves you. It's all good. Just smile. Be happy. Puppy dogs, rainbows. It's beautiful. In fact, Hananiah, that dirty dog, goes up to Jeremiah, and he rips the yoke that Jeremiah is wearing and throws it on the ground in front of everybody. And says, this is just an awful sermon. Quit preaching that. Jeremiah's only retort is, let's watch. Let's watch history and see what happens. And that's part of the part where the the, the lectionary picks up today. You know, let's let's see. It would be wonderful if everything was peace and and security. That would be delightful. But I don't think that's the way it's going to happen. In fact, God is going to take this, this yoke of wood and he's going to turn it into a yoke of iron. It's going to be, go from a being a burden to being a heavy, painful burden. And Jeremiah says to Hananiah, and Jeremiah said to the prophet Hananiah, this is later in the chapter, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made his people trust a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. And in the very last verse, 17, In the same year, in the seventh month, The prophet Hananiah died. Two bits of application. Today we kind of celebrate Graduate Sunday, which is really great. Um, We have graduates from college and high school, and so to my graduates I'm going to say this. Um, Jeremiah was about your age. He was in his late teens, early 20s when he went into this uh, ministry that the Lord had called him into. And it was a tough job. A young man, late teens, early 20s. Not being liked by very many people. Proclaiming the message the Lord had given to him. You know what? Sometimes it's more important to be faithful to God. Well, not sometimes. All the time. It's more important to be faithful to God than to be popular. It's more important to stand on the side of right than to try to pick the right side of history. It's more important to be on the side of God's word and his his revealed will than it is to try to do what the culture says is the most unpopular thing. Sometimes, graduates, you have to be willing to be the lone voice on the side of right. You have to be willing if nobody else goes along to say, I'm standing with God. Here is where I make my stand. With him and him alone. And if all the world is against me, so be it. Go along and get along is not the It's not the path that I'm going to take. Now, I don't mean that 
that you have to be a nagging Nelly. Nobody needs that. You don't have to be a nuisance in the world. Nobody needs that. You don't have to go. There are people who find something wrong with everything. For heaven's sakes, don't be that person. But neither should you go along with something just because it's popular, especially when you know it's contrary to the will of God. And so the church is the same thing, right? To all of us, that same message. That we have to stand with God on the costly side of grace, not the cheap side. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in 1939, or 1937 rather, wrote this book, The Cost of Discipleship. You should pick it up and read it. You should read every page of it, and you should read it every year. This is a book worthy of reading every single year, The Cost of Discipleship. But you should read this one little chapter because it's worth the price of the book, and it's called Costly Grace. Bonhoeffer was standing in the face of the rising tide of fascism. It's easy for us to look back in history and say, oh, of course he was against the Nazis. Everybody's against the Nazis. But at the time, he was a German in a country that was caught up in the swell of National Socialism. He was standing against what seemed to be the obvious course of history. And when he looked at uh, what the the Nazis were doing to, to, to Christianity and to grace, he wrote this, that this kind of grace is cheap grace, he called it, and it's the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace, not the sort of cheap grace that's sold like cheap wares, where the sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut-rate prices. He goes on to say that cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. It is grace without the preaching of forgiveness. It, it, rather, it is a preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, it's grace without the cross, and it's grace without Jesus Christ. Those of us in the church have to hear this message again, that sometimes God calls us to stand against the swell of history. We should be the ones standing, I can't remember exactly how Bill Buckley said it, but we need to be the ones who stand in in the tide of history and say, no, stop, no more. We have to be the ones who, who don't get caught up in the swell of the, um, the popular. Now, again, qualify that. We don't need to be the nasty, judgmental, harsh, finding fault with everybody kind of people either. Heaven help us. That's not grace either, is it? But we ought to be the ones who hold and stand on the side of God. In 1903, um, this man, Albert Strelow, invested $5,000 in the Ford Motor Company. He owned some property, and, and they, needed some, uh, they needed some property to, to, to set up some factory work. And, and he, uh, he, he lent it to them at a really low price. And, and for $5,000, um, Henry Ford gave him 5% of Ford Motor Company. And it looked like a good investment because for the next four years, he got a dividend check every year for $15,000 on his $5,000 investment. And then Albert heard about this can't-miss gold mine in Canada. And so he cashed in his stock, now worth $25,000, five times what he paid for it. He cashed in his $25,000 worth of stock and bought the can't, you know where this is going, don't you? He bought the can't miss gold mine in Canada. Anybody want to guess what happened with the can't miss gold mine in Canada? Yeah, it missed. Um, If he had held on to that 5% for just 12 years, his $5,000 investment would have been worth $18 million. 
And I don't even have a calculator with enough digits to calculate what it'd be worth now. Five thousand. If only he had held on to what he knew was working instead of what might. You know, it's very difficult to predict the future, isn't it? If you could predict, oh my word, a thousand dollar investment in Amazon in 1997. Whew. You, I mean, we would just pile the money in here, right? If you could just see it happen. I, I get really weary, and I hear it a lot anymore. Perhaps you do too. The right side of history. Who's going to be on the right side of history? The Nazis were saying what the right side of history was in the 1920s and 30s. The communists had another view about what the right side of history was in the 1940s and 50s. They both chose wrong. Being on the right side of history is a very difficult thing to prove or to determine. And what I'm saying to you is stand with God because he's always on the right side of history. In the end, he's the one who writes history. Consider a few of these quotes. Um, Oxford professor Erasmus Wilson. When the Paris exhibition of 1878 closes, electric light will close with it and no more be heard of. (laughs) Yeah, how'd that go? 1903, the president of the Michigan Savings Bank. The horse is here to stay, but the automobile is a novelty, a passing fad. One of my personal favorites, written by Governor Martin Van Buren in 1830 from New York to the President of the United States. Dear Mr. President, the canal system of this country is being threatened by a new form of transportation known as railroads. As you may well know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at an enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines which, in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended people to travel at such breakneck speed. (laughs) It is not as important for you to pick the right side of history as it is to be on the side of right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.